Thanks for being here. Dr. Mayhew, you're on. We're going to handle just a couple questions. Uh, we have a note here. Uh, here are just three. There were more cards that came in, but we're not going to answer them all at once. What version of the Bible are you using today? Well, that doesn't have anything to do with the subject matter, so we'll just put that at the bottom of the list, right? No. Whoever it was that asked, it's the New American Standard in its original form. It is a uh, 1971 first edition New American Standard, and that's because... B and I got saved just before it came out, and somebody gave me a King James Bible, and I couldn't understand it. This thing came out, and I could read it. So this is the only Bible I've ever had. So it's the New American Standard, and it's not at all dramatically different than the uh, update of the New American Standard. So it's a New American Standard Bible. Okay, I got that one. A gentleman asked this question, this political season, I'm hearing this phrase, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, da-da-da-da-da-da. What book of the Bible does that come out of, before I answer it? What document does it come out of? Declaration. Declaration. And who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Thomas Jefferson, who was... uh, a guy that mangled uh, the Gospels, uh, there is a Jefferson Bible that he cut portions out of to make what he wanted to believe. And most people, I think, uh, in terms of his writings, would believe he's uh, not a Trinitarian but a deist. Uh, the question is, is there a biblical foundation for this, or is, there, is this vain philosophy? Well, if God didn't write it, and a man wrote it, regardless of who he is, it's got errors in it. Um, it, it is, um, all men are created equal. Uh, he got that right. We're all born dead in our sins and trespasses. Nobody is born with a spiritual advantage over anybody else who's born. But that's not what Thomas Jefferson meant by that particular comment. So, there might be really great ideas here, and, and I, I would like to think I'm a patriot, um, but it's not inspired by God, etc., etc., etc. My father says there's no such thing as Satan. He says just bad people. Well, he's right, they're bad people. Uh, he's uh, an atheist. What is one thing I can point to that may open his mind? Anybody have a clue how to answer that question? What's the one thing? There is one thing that they can point to and give to him and engage him that would have the highest probability, it won't guarantee, but it would have the highest probability that uh, he might change his opinion before he dies. I still can't. Yeah, the gospel, the Bible. Give him the truth. This is called the light and the truth. And just give him the truth. How does it work? Nobody knows. Because God does it. I, I went into a church one night to get my neighbors off my back. If you had neighbors like that, they just kept banging you over the head with the gospel and you got to go to church with me. And I was a naval officer and more interested in my career and, you know, get out of my life. And, uh, uh, 
performed a couple of social faux pas and wanted to sort of do something nice. And so my theory was, what can happen at a Baptist church on a Monday night? My answer was nothing. So we went with them, and uh, B and I were ready to get a divorce, and uh, we both got saved. How did that happen? All I can tell you is I'm sitting there, and this guy's got a Bible. This guy's a used car salesman, and that's true. Uh, Not all pastors are used car salesmen. And uh, his first point was the Bible's true from beginning to end, and he read some Bible verses. And that's what the Bible says about itself. You can choose to reject it, but that's what the Bible says. And um, then he said, Jesus is God. And he read some Bible verses, and it's exactly what the Bible says, consistently, which you can choose to reject. Thirdly, he said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and began to describe. And uh, all of a sudden, he had my attention, and I'm sitting there telling myself I have got a massive problem, and it's eternal in scope, and I don't have a clue how to solve it. And I'm a guy that likes to solve problems, especially when they relate to me. So his next point was Christ and the cross. So that was really good. There's a solution to my problem, but I still don't know how to appropriate it. And I'm thinking, uh, how many weeks in a row have I got to go to Sunday school and uh, get recorded on the Sunday school chart and either get the little medals. Anybody come out of a Southern Baptist background, they used to wear medals if they went to Sunday school or get a star on a chart or how much money. I'd have written a check for any amount of money at that point. To, or what have I got to do, or da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da, 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 da. And his fifth point was, the work's already been done. You can't appropriate it by working, and you can't appropriate it by buying it because the price has already been paid. And that's the gospel. You embrace by faith the truth of the gospel. Um, so only a work of God will give somebody's sight in life, and it comes through... There's a word that, that is used most frequently uh, with the gospel. And uh, maybe the j- just if you don't know that verse, whoever asks the question, Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power of God unto salvation. Uh, Our logic and our words have absolutely no power whatsoever, independent of the truth of the Word of God and the work of God's Holy Spirit. So, long answer to a short but very, very important question that we'll finish with around 3 o'clock. What do you do for your dad? Just open the Word of God and give him the gospel and love him and live the gospel, so at least he's not accusing you of being a hypocrite and saying, I believe one thing, but I behave another way. That, that would, that, that's the Bible answer to that question from start to finish. Uh, okay, those are the three questions, and we're now only an hour and a half behind. It's 20 till uh, 11, right? I think I'm going to go on California time, and I'll have enough time to get done on this. <laughs> It's 20 till 8 at home. (laughs) We're going to go to pages uh, 4, yeah, page 4 in your 
in your little notes, not in my uh, voluminous set of notes, but in your little notes. And it was what I wanted to do uh, along with talking about Satan as, uh, as an enemy, but this will work out well. well. We go sort of fast in doing this, and we will be done by three, and we will have an hour for lunch if anybody is uh, concerned about that. Not that those are spiritual uh, ends unto themselves, but it it helps uh, endurance uh, along the way. I think we got the enemy down pretty pat, right? Nobody seemed to have too many questions about who we're dealing with and at least what his very nature, what his intentions are, what his modus operandi is. The question, though, for most of Christendom is, uh, where is he going to attack? Where's the battlefield? And I I think if I went out in a 100 churches, as far as I had to go in this area and ask the question, the majority of the people either wouldn't have a clue what the answer is, or the answers I get that are learned on TV and typically, TV's not the place to learn answers to Bible questions. Every once in a while, you can, but for the most part, uh, TV is a tool of Satan. Christian TV is a tool of Satan to perpetuate lies uh, disguised as truth, particularly when it comes to uh, Satan and demons. And uh, if you're a military person, you'd call that um, um, covert or misdirection uh, uh, involvement, and that is to tell everybody that I'm over here in this corner and I'm having victory over Satan and I yell at him and call him names and tie him up with ropes and do all the other silly stuff they do. When you're just sitting over there looking like an idiot in the eyes of God and Satan is over in that corner doing all that he wants to do and opposed by no one, um, so, where is the battlefield? What does the Bible say about the battlefield of Satan? And that's what I want to do really fast. Uh, so that means I ought to throw my notes away, or we'll never get there. And you've got some notes in front of you. And just uh, Satan's chief end, and I just want to sort of set you up for something we're going to do a little later. What is, what is Satan's chief end? He'll never achieve it but he'll strive after it. You know the end of Satan, right? If you don't know the end of Satan, you can go to Revelation 20 and it tells you. And that is he ultimately is cast into the lake of fire for how long? And just just to give you a heads up on Mike Stollard's year from now, he's not hurled into annihilation. You can think that one through. You can't be hurled from something into nothing, but you can be hurled from something into something else. And it says into the lake of fire. So uh, it's an attempt, but he's not very successful about it. Uh, Isaiah 14, I don't believe, talks directly about Satan, but I think it's a picture about Satan. And uh, I don't want to get into those kind of debates here. It started with uh, the angels in heaven, Revelation 12 would tell us. It continued with humans, Genesis 3 would tell us. And it climaxes with one final assault on Christ. Uh, One of the more interesting uh, moments in human history, Christ has ruled for a thousand years on the planet as a righteous king, the only totally benevolent, righteous ruler without exception for 1,000 years. And in the end, Satan's released 
from uh, his imprisonment. And there is a significant portion of the population that are willing to rise up with Satan in rebellion uh, against Christ, who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And you remember uh, that battle didn't last too long. It says fire came down from heaven and they were gone. And uh, God ushered in a new heaven and a new earth and eternity future and from that point on, everything was exactly what God wanted it to be, intended it to be, before creation and in Genesis 1 and 2. And I got a rabbit trail. My mind's going down, and I'm not going to do it. I refuse to go down that. Roman numeral 2, seduction of the mind results in corruption of the soul. And we've looked at those two passages, but let me just remind us in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul said, I'm writing to you to forgive. Why? In order that no advantage be taken of you, for we are not, what? Ignorant, which is talking about the mind, his schemes. And the word scheme in Greek is no emata, and its root is a word that talks about our mind. So schemes, just by virtue of their definition in 2 Corinthians 2.11, could be categorized as Satan's mind games. He's playing mind games with us to dissuade us from following the truth and find lies more attractive. And that is he tries to make lies look like they're true and makes the truth look like it's a lie, like Satan doesn't exist or God doesn't exist, which was the subject of the little card, a man who doesn't believe in God and a man who doesn't believe in Satan. We saw in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan is the God of this world and he's blinding unbelievers what? To the truth of the glorious gospel of Christ. The mind. So whether it's a believer or whether it's an unbeliever, the Bible says that the battlefield is our mind. Not how much education you've got. It has nothing to do with degrees or public school or private school uh, or homeschool or all that other. It has everything to do with my mind and am I thinking God's thoughts after God, which are found in the Word of God, or am I thinking some other thoughts, no matter where I got them from or who I got them from, which are at odds with the truth. And Satan wants to lead you down a path that uh, he says leads to heaven, and it actually finds its destination where? Where is he going to go in the end? Hell. That's his destination in the end. Now, does do those two verses mean that that's always true and is fairly a universally established principle? And the answer is two verses would lead me to believe that might be true. Not that these aren't true, but what else does the Bible say? Maybe the Bible says there's two or three other battlefields for Satan, although it doesn't. But if you, uh, if you looked at Proverbs uh, chapter 23 and verse 7, for as a man thinks within him, what? So is he. And that is what we think. This is not positive mental attitude. I'm not Joel Osteen, so... Uh, uh, do you ever watch Joel Osteen on television? 
You only need to watch him once because he preaches the same message every Sunday over and over and over. He takes his little Bible and says a little ditty, and then he tells a stupid joke, which has nothing to do with anything, and then he gives a positive mental attitude message from whatever Bible text he reads from and uh, talks about how you can have a happy, glorious, da 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 Just think what the martyrs of the church would think about a Joel Osteen message. But the mind is important. And the Word of God says as a general principle, as a man thinks, so he is. Jesus said something like that, didn't he? You're not sure. Well, he did. And that is, a man is on the outside, what he first is where? On the inside. Um, So those are some general statements about that principle. And I've listed a number of passages, and I I think for the sake of time, I'm going to let you look those up. Uh, There's a lot of passages there, and maybe they're your favorite uh, who can recite Matthew twenty two thirty seven, and has a loud voice? Anybody? It starts out here to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And what's the next one? Your mind. With your total being. With your mind at the center of it. Or Romans 12, verse 2. You're to be transformed as a believer by the renewing of your Mind, and and you could just march your way through all these passages that uh, I've I've listed. Uh, Philippians two five, we're to have this what in us that was also in Christ Jesus, this mind. So let me not insult your intelligence. Every one of those verses in Roman number four for righteousness' sake deals with the mind, and then Roman number five for evil. Every one of those. 2 Corinthians uh, 2.11 uses a mind word for Satan's schemes, noemata. Ephesians 6.11, uh, normally translated uh, schemes. I think King James does wiles at that point. Um, and it's another Greek word, methodeos, which is a, a mind word. 2 Corinthians 4.4, blinding the mind of the unbeliever. 2 Corinthians 11.3, we saw that, that your minds might be led astray from purity and simplicity of devotion to Jesus Christ. Wherever you look, God is wanting to impact our minds with the truth, and Satan is wanting to impact our minds with a lie. And if we buy the lie, we believe the lie, and we'll live the lie. If we believe the truth, we will grow in the grace, anybody know the rest of that? Second Peter 3.18, in the grace and another mind word, knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to say it's that simple, but it's that easy to understand as a concept and as truth. It's humanly impossible to live it consistently. And that's where the power of God's word in the life of a believer and the power of God's spirit working hand in hand works in our life as we grow, and one day will be what? One day will be completed. And what day is going to be that? Is it going to be Tuesday or Thursday? It's going to be when? Could be today. If, if, if you hear an angel shout and a trumpet sound, get ready. 
Yeah, if the rapture happens today, we're going to be complete. If you've got a loved one who died in Christ, they're going to be complete in less than a nanosecond before you are in the resurrection uh, when Christ comes, but not before. If you took the words for uh, salvation and the words for translated salvation, words translated sanctification, and the words translated holy in the New Testament, all of them refer to the moment we put our faith in Christ. They can refer to us growing in Christ while we're on the planet. And they also refer to what we'll be like when we get to heaven. Same words. And it's a process begun by God. And if it began by God, its end is as certain as God is certain. And so it can talk about the deed as having begun, but it's so certain we'll talk about it like it's completed, although it just started. We can talk about it when it's in process. We know it began, but we'll talk about it like it's ended. And when it's done, it's done. And then we can talk about it like we knew it was always going to be before we ever got there, Uh, which seems to confuse a lot of people. And I don't see anything confusing about it. Um, if God started something, God's going to complete something. Give you a good example. God made a lot of promises to Israel, a lot of them. And he made a lot of unconditional promises to Israel. And I'd be here to tell you, God's not a liar. And what God promised Israel one day will occur. Most of it hasn't occurred yet. But it will because God is sovereign in what he wills for the future both in terms of the nation of Israel and in terms of our salvation. That's the nature of God. If it wasn't, God wouldn't be God. Anyways, here's the point, Roman numeral 6. If Satan can cause you to think differently than the Word of God, you will be on the path to acting disobedient to the will of God. Got it memorized? It's fairly easy to memorize. It's really, really tough to live out 24-7. But it does begin in our mind. It does begin in our mind. And I hope you'll uh, embrace that fully um, as, as something that is true. It's absolutely true. It's true in Genesis. It's true in Revelation and everywhere in the middle. Although you'll have uh, thousands of books at the Christian bookstore and hundreds of preachers on the television trying to teach you otherwise. But you always, and I know you do, want to come back to the Word of God. So we have a sinister enemy, and he's out to uh, undo the cause of Christ. Uh, The battlefield is in our mind. From there... Let's turn in our notes to pages 5 to 8, and uh, we might have a chance. Boy, we've got a whole hour. We might be able to get back on time, and that would be really, really good. You're there on pages 5 to 8. It's got a big title on the top, The Schemes of Satan, a Biblical Exposé. I think I, I mentioned earlier, or early on in my Christian life, I was reading through my Bible and I came across Second Corinthians 2.11 and I asked the question, what book did Paul have in mind in the bookstore? And it wasn't my New American Standard Bible. Uh, it, it was the New Testament 
that was in the process of being written at that particular point in time, but most importantly, the Old Testament, which was already written at that time. And uh, so I, I, I decided, I mean, that's a pretty important, I'm, I'm writing this to you in order that no advantage be taken of you by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. And uh, concluding that he was talking about the Old Testament in particular, but God had given us the new, uh, completed after Paul's uh, martyrdom, I decided I was going to read through the whole Bible, and every time I came to particularly a passage where Satan was uh, historically active with somebody, like he was with Eve in Genesis 3, or one that talked about him, I was going to ask myself, how did he want me to think to lead me astray from the truth, and what truth of God would counteract the lie of Satan, or what would act as an antidote to the lie of Satan, or what would uh, neutralize the lie of Satan for me. That's where the book Unmasking Satan really uh, uh, began. The schemes of Satan are those things that we're not ignorant of, and the truth thereof is found in the Word of God, And uh, according to uh, the basic principle in Hebrews chapter, or Proverbs rather, chapter uh, 23 and verse 7, as a man uh, thinks, so is he. And I want to take a look at those, and I'm going to edit my notes again. Boy, so much. I always get in trouble with this. When I taught for years at uh, Grace Theological Seminary a long, long time ago, my nickname was uh, Machine Gun Mayhew. And I, I, I just, there was so much to the truth, and you had to go so fast, and you had to finish your lectures. But you're not seminary students, and uh, uh, you, I, I'm not going to impose that on you, so we'll go uh, a little slower. As I read through all that material in the Word of God, do you know how many chapters there are in the Bible? Anybody know? Here's a factoid for you. Tuck this away and they'll think you're brilliant. You can just, next time you meet somebody, ask them that question and you already know the answer. It's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. How many chapters, the next one's easier. How many chapters in the Bible are without sin? Without sin. Four, right? Two in the beginning and two in the end. Genesis 1 and 2 are without sin. That's before the fall. And Revelation 21 and 22 are without sin because it's the new heaven and the new earth. Everything else is with sin. You mean no sin mentioned? But the Bible is without sin because it's God's word, so it's true, so there's no sin. Well, my whole point is, is that when man fell in Genesis 3, sin entered the human race. And it didn't end until Genesis 20, and there were no exceptions in the middle. And that's just a biblical fact. So we'll, we'll go with only four chapters, two at the beginning and two at the end. You can check the book, and that's what it's going to tell you. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, do you give degrees here? Where'd Van go? Do you give degrees here? Okay, we're, we're going to do an overview of the Bible real quick just real fast so we can get onto this thing and I don't get too far astray. But but once we do this, you ought to give them a PhD before they leave today and uh, have fun. We're going to outline the entire Bible right now. 
Do you ready for this? Most of you are looking at me like, what did he drink between the sessions? No, it's, it's really easy. It's, it's a three-pointer. It's a Baptist message without the poem. Three points and that's it. Genesis 1 to 2 is before sin. Man had not fallen. Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 is during sin. And Revelation 21 and 22 is after sin. And that's the whole Bible. And you say, well, that's cute, but what's that got to do with? It's got to do with redemption. The Bible is a book about redemption from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation chapter 20. Men who are dead in their sins and trespasses and who need desperately to know the redemption of Jesus Christ and the gift of eternal life by faith and faith alone in Christ alone in his death, in his resurrection, and the promise that he is coming again. That's important to understand because Satan is operative from Genesis 3 to Revelation chapter 20, wanting to cause the whole human race to continue to sin not find the grace and the mercy and the love and the favor of God so that in the end God has no followers and Satan has captured the whole human race. I was going to do a little bit of that now and I'll wait and do it after lunch in terms of the kingdom of God and how that theme connects with what it is that we're talking about. So as I'm reading through the Bible and learning Uh, what it is that Satan is doing, because I never had done that before, it became very, very obvious to me that in terms of of large strategies, looking at all of the instances, there were only four. And I was encouraged by that, because it wasn't so complex that I couldn't get it. But in the midst of it, there were a lot of tactics, and tactics that could be uh, mixed and matched And what I want to do is go through the, it's pages five to eight in your notes, and take a look at each of the, uh, I call them objectives, but you could call them strategies, and just illustrate the kinds of things that Satan has done in history, and the kinds of things that he would be doing today. Might not be exactly as he did them in any one instance, but the principle would be the same. The mindset, and that's the key. As a man thinks, so is he. And if you as a believer are repeatedly thinking the truth or God's thoughts after God's thoughts, your behavior will change to be more of the truth and less of the way that it used to be. So let's start with number one, and it would be on page five in your handout. And the first strategy that you'll bump into if you take your Bible and to start to work your way through it, the first strategy you're going to bump into is this one. And that is to distort or deny the truth of God's Word. That's the first objective, or the first strategy. And let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, because that's where we bump into it. And as I alerted us earlier, up to Genesis chapter 3, we've got a perfect environment. And someone might ask, how do you know it's a perfect environment? And the answer is because that's what the Bible says. I'm big on what the Bible says. You maybe got that idea. It says in verse 31 of chapter 1, 
that God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. It was extraordinarily good. It was so good, it was perfect. And then chapter 3 comes along, and Satan enters into the picture. Now remember, it's a perfect environment. They can do anything they want to, but eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, there is no sin in their thinking and their life whatsoever. And the serpent, chapter 3, verse 1, who was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord had made, came along and he said to the woman, Indeed has God said. Just a question. There's nothing wrong with a question, is there? Indeed hath God said, You shall not eat from any tree uh, of the garden. Hmm. And the woman said to the serpent, and, and she, boy, she spit this back at him really, really quick. From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it lest you die. You can go back to 2.17, and God said everything essentially. He didn't uh, refer to touching it at that point. So Satan came along, in whatever form Satan came along in, however attractive Satan was, engaged in a dialogue that began with just a simple question. Has God said? Now, if it had been me, I'd have said, quoting Jesus, what did Jesus say when Satan tried to talk him into wearing the crown before he went to the cross? He just had one word response to Satan. Be gone. Be gone, be gone, be gone. Remember that in the temptations in Matthew chapter 4? Everything that Satan was putting in front of Christ was to get him to wear the crown before he went to the cross. And Jesus did what on all three occasions? He one quoted scripture, and after three occasions he said, be gone. I'd love to have seen Eve at this point just say, be gone, get out of here. I know what God said, but she didn't. And so the serpent said, verse 4, he's not now not asking a question, he's making an accusation. You surely shall not die. And I can just tell you this, in the Hebrew text, when God said you're going to die, it is in the most uh, emphatic, certain, dying, you shall surely die, and there's no question about it. That's what God said. Satan came along, and as we saw in our first session, what did Satan, what would be the nature of what Satan said? Just the opposite of what God said. God said, you eat, you'll die. Satan says, you eat, you'll live. So now Eve's got some options from a human perspective. No options if she takes God's word at face value. And that's what the whole human race faces today. This book hath said, and the world and Satan's domain has said a lot of other things that either in part or in whole disagree with, contradict, or discredit the word of God. 
Now, here's, watch what happens. Most people just kind of read over this deal, and they want to get on to the good stuff. This is the most important chapter in all of the Bible to understand the human race and world history. Eve now believes, with two opposing ideas, that it's incumbent upon her finite mind to decide whether the infinite mind of God is correct or the finite mind of the serpent is correct and determine it with her own unfallen mind. That's important to understand at this point. Her mind is not yet fallen. And so in verse 6, the first uh, empirical thinking in human history occurred. Uh, She studied the tree. Here's this tree that God said, don't eat from it. And if you do, there will be tragic consequences. And we kind of humorously talked about that earlier. They, They did eat from it, and they didn't die physically, but they died spiritually. The idea of death in Scripture is the idea of separation. And the minute that they ate, fellowship with God was broken. And while they were still alive physically, they were separated from God spiritually. His intent of being their God and them being his people and worshiping him forever was broken. And the need for redemption began. But she studied the tree. And it tells us what the results are. The woman saw that the tree was good for food. That was empirical observation number one. Huh. Why would God deprive us of food, she might have thought, for whatever she knew about the person of God. Um, But it's obvious that she thought that was something that was positive and lined up with Satan's thinking in light of what she did. So physically, the tree didn't seem like it was so evil or so death-producing. So secondly, she saw that it was a delight to the eyes. There was an aesthetic pleasure that was brought about by just looking at the tree. It must have been a beautiful tree. And thirdly, she says, the tree was desirable to make one wise. Wow. This thing's good for food. Makes me feel good, and it'll make me wise. I don't believe any of that's true, but that's what Eve thought as she looked at that tree. If I told you that arsenic was good for food, and it was pleasant to look on, and it would make you wise, would that make arsenic any less poison? No, arsenic is arsenic. It'll kill you. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the fruit thereof, if eaten, will kill you in more ways than she could imagine. But in her own mind, she had concluded, based on what she did, that God was wrong and Satan was right. And where was the battlefield in Genesis 3? In the mind. And we could sort of get that by reading this text although it doesn't have the word mind there. And for those doubting Thomases, uh, you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 to 3, and it tells us exactly by divine 
revelation what happened in this particular text, that Eve's mind was led astray from the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. We are faced every day, is this true, is this true, is this true, is this true, is this true? And unless the Word of God takes precedent, and that we, in a sense, use the Word of God as the glasses with which we look at all of life and interpret life, knowing this book is inerrant and infallible, uh, given by God, unless we interpret life, our worldview, as it were, that way, we will always fall prey, as did Eve, to letting our minds... Now, you don't have an unfallen mind, and neither do I. We might have a redeemed mind, but it's not a perfected mind. And so it it can be tantalized. Um, It can be deceived to buy into the lies of the world that either are partially true... Or not at all true, but people want to make you think it's true. Just like Eve in Genesis chapter 3. He had not only distorted the word of God, he had what? Denied the word of God. And she, with her own mind, looking at life and the evidence, pitted God, who has no equal and no peer, with Satan, who not only wanted to be God's equal, but wanted to be God's superior. And she sided with Satan, I can eat it, I won't die, even though God said, if I do, I will. And she and her husband ate, the human race fell, and every human being who's ever been born in all of time, anywhere on the planet, has been born, has been conceived, and born, and lived, as a sinner dead in their sins and trespasses, apart from God giving them light to see and life to live by the death of Christ on the cross. That's what the Bible is about. It's human history with the theme of redemption and God's provision for what man could not achieve on his own because one person chose to allow their mind as the battlefield to be deceived by someone who disguised themselves as an angel of light, I'm telling you the truth, you can eat and have all this stuff, have it for food, make make you feel really good, make you wise, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and set the pace for the rest of human history up until the hour in which we live. Now, most of the world would reject what I've just said because, one, they don't believe in creation, Two, they don't believe in the God of the Bible. Three, they don't believe in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ as both a historical, spiritual, and eternal reality, and they just reject it all. And you know who's applauding all the way and giving them PhDs and teaching your kids at the university? Satan, who is the God of this world, and the ruler of this world's system temporarily deceiving the minds of men and women. Now, at this point, if you think I'm nuts, I'm not nuts. You think God is nuts, and you think the Word of God is nuts, because that's what the Word of God teaches. 
If you don't believe in the historical reality of Genesis 3, you have absolutely no reason to believe in the truthfulness of any of the rest of Scripture. Absolutely none. So it's a really important chapter. It's the gateway to everything else the Bible says. Uh, It is the lens by which to understand the world as God originally intended it, as it currently is, which is not the end game for the Lord, and what it one day will be when it is. I can't tell whether I'm putting you to sleep or I've just given you an idea you never had before or you're sitting there saying, boy, why did they bring this guy from California? He's lived up to everything I thought about people from California. That, that is the word of God. That is the truth of God. The scheme, and you can see what I've uh, labeled it in terms of its tactic, and I've called it sensualism. And that's, a, that's the right word. And here's its definition. Attractiveness, desirability, or utility have replaced God's word. And that's exactly what happened. God said, don't eat it because you're going to die. But it was good for food. It brought her pleasure. And she thought it would make one wise. And therefore she sided with Satan. Attractiveness, desirability, or utility have replaced God's word as my standard for determining God's best in my life. And if she were consistent for the rest of her life, Whenever God said something and there was an opposing idea, she'd back away and say, the mind of God is not what determines truth. My mind determines what's truth. There's a philosophy that sort of follows that, isn't there? Can you remember what it is? I am what? The master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And folks, that's a lie right from the mind of Satan and out of the pit of hell. Everyone in the room is subservient to the sovereignty and the lordship of God, whether you realize it or whether you don't realize it, whether you embrace it or whether you fight it all the way to the grave. What you think And what I think, independent of Scripture, is meaningless in the eternal plan of God. Now, if I were in a Baptist church, which I've been told I'm not, on several occasions, because I think the last time I preached here, on more than several occasions, I told you that you were in a Baptist church. And I should have said you were in a Bible church. And the truth is, if it's a good Baptist church, it's a Bible church. So, who wants to argue about that. That is, I, I, I hope you're all embracing that. If it's a brand new truth, I, I hope you'll hug it big time because we're going to look at, uh, at some more. Why don't you go down to number two on the page while we're there. Matthew chapter four. So we'll go over to Matthew chapter four. You say, well, that's in Genesis. And maybe that was a one-time deal and it just didn't quite Continue. We know it continued. Why? If somebody said that's just one historical instance at the beginning of time, and we don't have any reason to believe that kind of thing continued, what would our answer be to say, you know, that's not true? 
This is like who's buried in Grant's tomb, because we've already looked at this passage about 18 times. Paul, in 2 Corinthians, where? 11, stated that not only was it true in Genesis 3, but he, was, he had a phobia, literally, that it was going to happen right there in the Corinthian church thousands of years later. So this is a continuum in terms of its basic idea. But Matthew chapter 4, and Satan's taking on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And uh, you know, I think, the content of that was uh, tempted by Satan, tested by his father successfully on all three occasions. Uh, Jesus even was uh, tempted by Satan's misinterpretation of Scripture. He tried to bring the authority of Scripture behind some of his temptations. And what did Jesus do on every occasion, all three occasions? He brought Scripture to bear correcting the errors of Satan and affirming the truth of God and in the end said, be gone, not only demonstrating to us. He didn't have to prove his deity, but he demonstrated his deity that we can uh, believe. But here's what he was trying to put in the mind of Christ. It seems very, very apparent. And that is immediate success is more desirable than success in God's time. Think for just a minute, hypothetically. What if Jesus had found that attractive? Now, remember, it's hypothetical, so don't, don't think too much on this. What if Jesus had said, boy, you know, crucifixion is not a very pretty thing. If you've ever studied crucifixion, it, it is agonizingly ugly from a, just a pure physical standpoint. There's hardly any kind of death that equals it in terms of pain and suffering. But if I could just have the crown without the cross, and I could have it now instead of later, wow. And that's exactly, Satan failed, absolutely failed in what he was attempting to accomplish, but nonetheless attempted it. And if he's going to take on Christ, as I said before, guess what? We're no contest. Uh, those, try those guys. They're, they're easy pickings for Satan. Tomorrow, I'm going to look at, in our worship service, for those of you that worship here, uh, number three there, rationalism. Uh, it's, it's an amazing text, and I, I, I'm going to restrain myself from going through it now. But here's the mindset. You can think about it. I will substitute human reason... For simple, childlike faith anchored in the Word of God. That's exactly what rationalism is. And that is thinking about the things of life apart from the revelation of the Word of God. Rationalism is man's best thought apart from the Word of God to determine whether man's best thought is right or man's best thought is wrong, and we're going to see the implications tomorrow, so I'm not going to go there. But strategy number one is distort or deny the truth of God's word. Uh, every one of your lecture series, fan, have uh, addressed something that Satan's attacking here. Uh, you were in eschatology with Tom Edgar 
last year. Um, and I know he's a futuristic premillennialist, so I, I know what he taught. But there are a lot of other opinions by people who, in fact, are Christians. I wouldn't question their salvation. I just would question their ability to interpret the Word of God correctly from beginning to end. Uh, there's a lot of options. Only one of them can be true. There, there's not a post-millennial end of the world and an amillennial end of the world and a premillennial end of the world and a historic premillennial end of the world and a preterist end to the world. Uh, and on it goes with all the different positions. Which one's right? And how do we know? Answer, we know because we've carefully studied the Word of God and given it the advantage from beginning to end. Next year, Mike Stollard is a super Bible teacher. You ought to sign up for that now. Um, And take a look at what happens at death. And there's a, a growing proportion of the Christian community. And again, people whose salvation, I'm not here to question, who are believing that at death, either we have a time of soul sleep and then go out of existence, or we just take our last breath and we're no better than any animal on the planet. question is, is that right or is that wrong? And you say, well, who cares? Well, you're going to care when one of your loved ones is about ready to die. I can guarantee that. You're going to care about it when you're ready to die. And every human being who's going to face death cares about it. What is the truth? We can't have eternity with God forever and annihilationism as two options. And on the way out, you can choose A or B. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. How do I know the truth? Well, I went to a really good seminary and had really good professors, and no, that that doesn't. I mean, it's good. That's a, but it's does it square with the Word of God? What's the truth of the Word of God? And sometimes the truth of the Word of God is not easy to come by. I mean, it's there and it's true, but to transfer it to my mind and my understanding might take some time, might take some hard work. Um, might take looking at everything the Word of God has to say, the whole counsel uh, of God. But I want to tell you, folks, pursuing the truth is the most worthy endeavor of any human being uh, in our existence. And that is to know the truth. I think the Bible says something about it. What's it say about it? If you know the truth, it'll do what? Set Set you free. And that's not an American verse. That's not free market. Capitalism will set you free, or democracy will set you free. What will set you free from being dead in your sins and trespasses? The truth about Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. And you can only obtain salvation by faith in him, in his historicity, uh, in his deeds of death, burial, and resurrection and the promise that he's coming again. Uh, There aren't two ways of salvation. There aren't three ways of salvation. One of the big lies in our world, and it is uh, growing dramatically. Um, Here would be a great illustration because I've just come out of it. 
We just had a visit from at the seminary from uh, a secular regional accrediting agency, which is far more willing to allow us to believe what we want to believe than the religious accrediting agency for seminaries, which is called the Association of Theological Schools, which is made up of uh, Protestant schools, uh, Catholic schools, Roman or uh, Jewish schools, seminaries that would uh, teach religion, train men for the ministry. And uh, one of the mandates that they're coming up with, fueled by the Department of Education, and I, I won't get on my soapbox about all that, but just, just to make the point, is that there are many ways of salvation, and to be an accredited seminary, you need to teach them all and give validation to them all. And while that now is kind of in its uh, germinal discussion form, I can guarantee you that where that's going to go as a destination. Um, and, and it's just one lie. It's called uh, inclusivism. Uh, everybody with every religion is going to be ultimately included in God's uh, eternal program. And it is true they're going to be included in God's eternal program. They just don't tell you the options, heaven or hell. And those who have rejected Christ, the, the door to hell is here. And those that have received him, uh, the door to heaven is over here. Uh, the ancients used to say that uh, uh, the road to hell is paved with the bones of errant priests, telling people this is the way to heaven, guiding them on it, dying, only discovered that at the end is a destination they hadn't planned on. And how's all that occurring? Satan, just by virtue of deceiving Eve, who disobeyed along with Adam, therefore propagating a human race of sinners dead in their sins and trespasses, find the lie more attractive than the truth, label it the truth, and they call you and me what? There's a lot of things they call us. Deluded? Uh, fundamentalist? You guys identify with the term fundamentalist? Some of you do. You know what a fundamentalist is? It's a guy that's so narrow-minded he could see through a keyhole with both eyes at the same time. That's what they think of us. I mean, they'd like to disparage anything that's fundamental, regardless of whether it's religious or, or otherwise. But that's what's been happening in the world ever since the garden. We've given you several examples, and I've taken way too much time to do that. So let's proceed, and we've got time to get where we need to go to lunch. Go to page uh, 6, and it should say about the middle of the page, I think, at least my notes do. Uh, the adversary's second objective, discredit the testimony of God's people. Now remember that Satan is attempting to neutralize you as a believer for having any positive effect on the planet in your life for the advance of the kingdom of God. And his number one shot in its broadest strategic sense is to distort or deny the word of God. But he knows you go to Fellowship Bible Church, or maybe you go to Fellowship Baptist Church and it's somewhere else in the area, or some other church that's faithful to the word of God, whatever it is. And, and you got that thing under your arm, and there is no way that you're going to deviate from it. There's no way you're going to fall prey to any distortion or denial. This is the inerrant, 
infallible word of God. Okay, that's, that's good. So he'll come at you another way. And it's right there. Discredit the testimony of God's people. It's not enough just to believe the truth. It's a good start. Highly recommended as a first priority. But what's the, what, what would be the quickest way to empty this church? Besides me to go past 3 o'clock. That empty it really quick. It would be for your pastor to engage in some publicly visible high-profile sin. It would come close to destroying this church. Because who in this church is supposed to be the guy that's got the greatest handle on the book, both knowing it, understanding it, promoting it, teaching it, proclaiming it, insisting upon it, etc., etc., etc.? It's just the pastor of the church and the elders of the church. And what happens when the pastor and or the elders of the church engage in unbiblical, immoral, whatever it might be, behavior? What's the word that comes to mind? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. You got it. And that's what Satan would love the world to think about those who are true believers in Jesus Christ. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They're narrow-minded. They're bigoted. They're fundamentalists. They don't know what they're talking about. They're kind of an uneducated lot, and on and on it goes. So by their behavior, which contradicts what they say they believe and say they're willing to die for, we've just proven the uh, inconsistency of what it is they believe and what Satan done. He's won the day. If they can discredit your testimony, who cares what you believe? You're not willing to live by it anyways. You say, well, where does it teach that in the Bible? Well, not too far into the New Testament. The classic example is in Acts chapter 5. And who's in Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira. And what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They went to church one day and God killed them. That'd be a great church growth principle. (laughs) But why did God strike them dead? They lied. And what did they lie about? They're giving. I mean, why lie about your giving? But they did. I, I mean, they were doing a good thing by giving. And they lied about it. And it says in the text that they lied to whom? The Holy Spirit. And God struck them dead. Wow. You know what everybody in Jerusalem thought after that? I'm not going to that place, because uh, you might walk in alive, but there's a good chance you're not going to walk out alive, unless you obey the word of God. Why would God be so tough on a lie? Is there anything we've looked at today that would lead us to that conclusion? Who's the father of lies? And if you're a liar... What would it, whose family tree would it look like you're in? Satan's. You're the greatest promoter of satanic thinking in the community if you lie. Because God stands for what? The truth. I mean, we've even bought into that in our judicial system. 
the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that's from a secular judicial system that wants that from you, rarely gets it from those who say they will, but uh, nonetheless would, uh, would want that uh, in the process. 5.3, Peter said, Ananias, why has, what's the next word? The adversary filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And it's pretty obvious that lying is adversarial to a system at whose head is the God of truth and people who claim to embrace and preach the truth. And if I were to to define the mindset that I believe Satan wanted Ananias and Sapphira to have, and which they demonstrated, they bought into it. And that is that I believe that God's word is flexible enough to bend when I judge that the situation demands it. I'm sure they had a good reason for lying. I just don't know what it was. And I, I justified it. I'm doing a good thing for whatever reason the, the, the end justifies the means, and so I'm going to lie about it. And God said, you might lie about it, but you're going to pay a price. You're going to die. They became an example to the early church. And you can go, I've listed a number of other passages there, and I don't think I need to march through that to make the point. If God can't get you by distorting, or, or Satan rather, if Satan cannot get you by distorting or denying the truth of God's word. The next step is to discredit your testimony. And that is you're going to live a lie or live disobedient to the word of God, which undermines any credibility in believing in the word of God. Why believe in it if you're not going to live it? And you say, well, nobody is going to detach me from the truth of God's word. And that's wonderful. And no one's ever, ever going to cause me to veer off and fall in the ditch alongside of the road of righteous living. And that's good. But I'd be on my guard. But let, let's say that's, that's your life. Uh, one thing you'd learn about Satan, if it took him all the way from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 to run his course, well, what quality might we, and we might even in other circumstances call it positive. He's persistent, he's persistent absolutely. Uh, he's focused, that can be a good thing if you're focused on Christ. He's focused on undermining Christ. He's focused, he's persistent, he perseveres. Uh, he doesn't take no for an answer. He doesn't let defeats discourage him. So his third objective, and I think in your notes it's going to be on the next page towards the top, says the adversary's third objective in italics. And that is to destroy the believer's enthusiasm for God's work. The word world is filled with people who once were willing to die for this, and even people are willing to die for it but weren't willing to live completely uh, in it, but people who with both of those at some point in their life just, they're out of energy, they're out of gas, they're out of enthusiasm, uh, they're out of everything, and and either they uh, walk to the sidelines or they limp 
to the sidelines for a variety of reasons. And again, if, if Satan's ultimate goal is to take you out of the game and make you ineffective in being an agent for the advance of God's kingdom, temporarily he's won the victory. At least in your life he's achieved it. Um, boy, a lot of passages here we could uh, to go to, and I don't want to get myself uh, too far off the track, but uh, let's go to Luke 22. Let's go to Luke 22. It's kind of an interesting passage, and we got a couple minutes we can wander around in Luke 22. The uh, scene is with Peter, and I've already alluded to it this morning. Luke 22, verses 31 to 34. And, and you'll remember it. It's a pretty familiar passage. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, said, Lord, with you I'm ready to go to prison and to death. And Jesus responded, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not grow today until you've denied three times that you know me. Um, Peter had really high aspirations for himself, wouldn't you agree? I mean, how many of us are willing to say, knowing that the reality is right there, I'm willing to go to prison or die for the cause of Christ? We could say it, but I think there's about a 100% probability by sundown you'll never face that here. Or maybe maybe Charlestown is not as nice a town as I think it is, but I don't think it's going to happen here. So it's easy to say it. The question is, am I willing to live it? And Peter was in a set of circumstances where he was going to have to live it. And it's a really interesting passage that we're familiar with. But let me take just a second and show you what's really most important about this in terms of discrediting the testimony of Peter. I can guarantee if you wanted to go out into Charlestown and do evangelism and do it holding Peter up as, as the epitome of what a Christian is like, they are going to take you to the Gospels and say, how could you put that poor guy up as an example of consistent Christianity? He denied Christ three times. This is an unbeliever doing this. We understand God's forgiveness and God's mercy. But look at the little phrase, behold, Satan has demanded permission to, it's an agricultural term, to, to sift, and we might, you might know it more as a baking term than an agricultural term, because uh, we don't farm today like they did 2,000 years ago. But let me tell you how they farmed 2,000 years ago. And you're saying, boy, this guy's really, that's really a rabbit trail. No, this is how to understand this passage, and it's critical that we do it. When they dealt with grain, regardless of what it was, whether it was barley or oats or, or wheat, there were basically four stages that they went through. And the first one's obvious, they harvested it. They, they had handheld sickles, and they went through and cut it, and they bundled it, and they took it back to what they called a threshing floor, and it was threshed. And you can go to Israel today, just as an example, and they still have threshing floors, you can see. And uh, animals would uh, typically walk around and walk over uh, the stalks of harvested grain, and the grain's now being separated from the stalk. 
And that was the second phase. The third phase was winnowing. And they normally did it with a, a wooden um, a pitchfork type gadget. And uh, they would figure out which way the wind was blowing and what was left uh, uh, on the grain they would just throw in the air and the heavier grain would come down and the wind would blow the lighter uh, chaff away. And then there was a fourth step. And the fourth step was this step, sifting. And sifting amounted to taking what was left with a shovel and putting it through a, a sieve. And sometimes a sieve could be, it's not like the one you use for baking, it could be fairly big. And it was designed with uh, very small holes in the whatever mesh they had to let the grain, the pure grain, fall through. And whatever impurity, whether it be a, a clump of mud or uh, a little stone connected by the clump of mud uh, or whatever, uh, that would then be left in the top of the sieve. And that way you would separate the final, that'd be the final stage of separating the impurities from the wheat or grain, with barley, oats, or whatever. And so that would now be um, uh, on a piece of cloth and uh, would be as pure as it was going to get through those four processes. And what did you have left over? You kind of had the wood, hay, and stubble, in a sense, left over. And the question is, why would Satan want to do that? I mean, if he sifted Peter, wouldn't that mean Peter was purer? When he got done and he's on the cloth, why would Satan do that? Well, that's because Satan had a PhD, but he still was stupid, spiritually speaking. That'd be the nicest way to put it. And Jesus said, verse 32, I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Didn't say that your faith might not falter, which is what happened to Peter, but it would not and we know the history of Peter, that followed. And he says, once you have turned again. So we know that Peter recovers from the sifting process. Why would Satan do that? You don't seem too intent to want to know the answer to that question. But I'm going to show it to you anyways. Go to the book of Revelation. You say, that's a strange place to go. No, not really. Uh, it, it is um, in the Word of God. Everybody there? Revelation 12? If, if you don't know where the book of Revelation is, it's at the end of the book, not at the beginning. That's, I as I went to seminary as somewhat of a new believer, maybe saved a year and about a weekend, I was in a chapel session sitting next to a seminary professor. And for some reason, he didn't bring his Bible with him. I, I'm not sure. He was a godly guy. So we're sharing my Bible. And the Bible speaker said, now turn back to a certain book in the Old Testament. And I went the wrong direction in front of the... <laughs> wish somebody had told me where that book was because I was tremendously embarrassed Look at what it says in verse 10. It starts out good. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren. Who do you think that would be? 
that would be the devil accusing our brethren, has been thrown down, who does what? Accuses them before our God day and night. Now picture heaven. Christ is at the right hand of the Father interceding for believers. And guess who's the prosecuting attorney in the judicial picture? It's Satan. And what is Satan presenting as evidence to God that we're not candidates for his redemption? What would that be? Our sin. How in the world can you give eternal life to someone who sinned as badly as, well, let's put Peter in there. And all Satan had to do was take that sieve and show him all of the stuff in Peter's life that got separated out in the harvesting process. And that's why Jesus used the word sift instead of thresh. If Peter got threshed, that would have been a pretty, really painful experience. But he got sifted. And Satan would hold that out there and say, why in the world would you call him to be an apostle, a disciple, give him salvation, etc., 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 when this is in his life? And here's the evidence for it. Accusing the brethren. That was what Satan was attempting to do. And was he successful or did he fail? Satan. Failed miserably. Why? It says in the text. Jesus interceded on his behalf, and after the temptation on Satan's part, the trial by God to strengthen him, he was to strengthen his brethren. Yeah, absolutely. He was to strengthen his brethren. So how does all that connect with the third objective? Destroy the believer's enthusiasm for God's work. Well, here's what I believe that Satan wanted to put in the mind of uh, Peter in order to take Peter out of the ball game. And that is because I failed, and Peter did fail miserably temporarily. Uh, falter might be a better term to use there. I'm no longer useful in the king's service. And that's a perfectly good human thought. If I've blown it, I'm out of there. God had a very different plan than Satan did, but it didn't discourage Satan from doing what he did. And you can go through. You can read about uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 to uh, chapter 3 and verse 2. Um, this is a classic and, and uh, absolutely clear passage. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, Paul really wanted to get rid of that thorn, didn't he? We read it. And he prayed three times, which is a Hebrew way of saying, I've, I've attempted to do what I'm doing completely. Units of three were a sense of completeness to the Hebrew mind. And God came along and changed Paul's thinking. Paul was thinking, if you just remove the thorn from my flesh, I could minister in the strength of my flesh, because I wouldn't have a weakness. But God said, Peter, uh, I've got a better idea. If you're weak, you'll need my power. And if you'll minister in my power, provided by my grace, you'll be far more powerful and productive for the cause of Jesus Christ. 
And I think Paul lived up to God's expectations, didn't he? Even in the midst of his greatest weakness, he was at the level of his greatest strength and had a wonderful ministry to the very end, so much so that he could say, I, I've uh, fought the good fight, I've uh, run the race, um, and I'm now ready to go to heaven and live in the presence of Almighty God. Destroy the believer's enthusiasm for God's work believing that God can't forgive or God can't be merciful or God can't be loving and take you out of the ball game, even though you're still clutching your Bible and believe it, uh, even though at this point you've not lived a life of sin, but the circumstances in your life have just been spiritually uh, debilitating and whatever. Let me give you one more because that's all there is. And it's not that I ran out of notes. I ran out of what the Bible had to say. Uh, on that particular uh, mind. Number one was distort and deny the truth of God's word. Number two was discredit the believer's uh, testimony for Christ. Number three is uh, diminishing the believer's enthusiasm for God's work. And the fourth, and for most of you, now most of you I don't know, I've never met you in my life before today. You all are just absolutely lovely people a wonderful audience. I haven't caught anybody sleeping yet, uh, and that's terrific, but we still have the afternoon to go, so uh, beware that I'm, I'm looking. Um, but I don't know you. Um, but I'm assuming that you believe the truth. There is no way you're going to deviate in what you're thinking about this book. I'm also willing to believe that you believe it so strongly and so effectively and you uh, are in it so frequently that you're not going to behave disobedient to it. So your testimony is not going to be discredited. And I'm going to believe that uh, you've got your eyes fixed uh, and riveted on the author and finisher of your faith and no matter what comes your way uh, that will rob you of your enthusiasm for God's work, you're going to slough it off and you're going to continue to move forth for the purposes of accomplishing God's will on earth. And if Satan didn't get you in any one of those three, here comes maybe the most deceptive for people like you and me. And it's simply this. Dilute the effectiveness of God's church. Dilute the effectiveness of God's church. And here's the lie. If I'm just active somewhere in the church, I'm doing God's work? Really? That may be true, and that may not be true. But if Satan could, uh, say, eliminate God's top five priorities, sort of, you know, that... That getting the Word of God on Sunday night and Sunday morning and Wednesday night and Bible studies, that's kind of turning people off. And, you know, we're just not getting anywhere with that stuff. So we're not going to eliminate it, but we'll sort of minimize it. And, you know, telling somebody that they've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God isn't exactly a feel-good message. So we sort of better tone down the gospel. I mean, you know, why give it to them all at once? Maybe if we spread it over 10 years, 
they'll find it attractive. And so, so we're, we're, we're not going to eliminate preaching, but we're going to minimize it. And we're going to sort of edit the gospel so it's not, not so repulsive to people who see themselves as good and regardless of what they believe or behave or going to heaven and, and, uh, you know, that worship stuff, that, it's, it's pretty mystical. There's a lot of different ways to do it. You know, some people feel good with candles and dark atmosphere. Some people like lots of lights and loud noise. Um, um, and, you know, the church has got more money than it knows what to do with. And when it does do something with it, frequently it's stupid. And it's my money. So I'm going to cut my giving down to the church. Let's see. What else could we do to improve the church? Oh, the the standard for leadership is too high. They're looking for perfect guys or almost perfect guys. And, you know, only the guys that try to look perfect but aren't are going to make it. And they really aren't what they think they are. So let's just lower the... What do you think, Van? Van doesn't know what to think. You were thinking with your wife. I shouldn't have called on you. So what do you think of Fellowship Bible Church instituted those five great ideas for yeah, five for church growth? What do you think would happen to Fellowship Bible Church? You're not sure. I think, I do, I think it I think so. I honestly do. Of people who could care less about the things of the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you'd be Church of the Year in the IFCA if they never came here to see how you did it. And how, how did that happen? I mean, the world, I mean, your collections would skyrocket, even though you individually were giving less to the church. But if you got a lot more people coming, you're going to have a lot more money. But all of that would be to set some of God's very top priorities. The preaching of God's word. The proclamation of the gospel without changing it, adding to it, or taking away from it. God's people giving abundantly in the manner in which God's given to them. Uh, Leadership that are examples to the flock and the flock can follow them. Those are God's priorities. But if Satan could just have you get away from those five and then just keep doing all the other good stuff you're doing, ushers, you can ush and um, all the other stuff you do in a local church, you're probably doing some really good things for lots of people in the community and those are good things to do. Nothing wrong with those. Let's just eliminate those five. And you essentially would... uh, Go from a church of strength from God's perspective to a church of absolute weakness and disobedience. And you know, God doesn't like that too well. Have you ever thought about that? And you say, well, how do you know that? Have you ever been to heaven? No. Have you ever had a personal discussion with God face-to-face? No. So how do I know that? Well, it's because I'm the dean of the seminary, and the dean knows everything. 
insofar as he knows the word of God. There was a church like that in the Bible. And you know what? Jesus wrote him a letter. How'd you like to get a letter from Jesus? Then they'd be front page in the voice. Fellowship Bible Church, Shenandoah Falls, West Virginia. Van Marceau, pastor, had a letter from Jesus, and it said so on the return corner of the envelope. Wow, we got a letter from Jesus. The church at Ephesus got a letter from Jesus, and it was a pretty neat letter. I know your deeds and toil and perseverance. And you can't endure evil men and put to the test those who call themselves apostles. I mean, all that stuff about believing and behaving, these folks were doing terrific. You can imagine reading this in the morning service, and the people are saying, boy, did I pick a neat church to go to. Listen to what Jesus said. Till you get to verse 4, and there's a really important word there. It's a pretty common word, but it's important. And it's the word that's spelled B. U-T. And it's a word that has a contrast to it. And Jesus said, I like all this stuff, but, (laughs) stand by, I have this against you. Uh Uh-oh, I think we're in trouble. You've left your first love, so remember, therefore, from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Uh Uh-oh. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Wow. Jesus is in the business of taking churches down who aren't embracing his priorities rather than building them up. Put another way, do it God's way, or God will find another church to do it through. And that's exactly what Satan would want, a very busy, active, involved, uh, sacrificial with time, etc., 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 church, who just dispensed with the first things, the things that were most important to God. And what's he accomplished if he does that? He hasn't, you haven't lost your salvation, individually or corporately. But he has neutralized you in terms of strength and fruitfulness in accomplishing the priorities of God. And that's what he's after by causing you to think differently than God's word and acting disobediently to God's will. Boy, we've gone through a lot of stuff this morning, haven't we? And it's 12 o'clock, so I need to do one thing and turn it over to uh, Van, and that is to tell you where we're going to go this afternoon. Just so you stay for this afternoon. The the, the big deal in a conference like this is not how many people show up in the morning, it's how many people are left at the end of the afternoon. (laughs) Either because they went the way of Ananias and Sapphira, (laughs) or the speaker chased them off for some reason. But this afternoon, it's page 9 in your notes, I do want to take a look at Christian countermeasures. If we take seriously what I've said this morning, to go back outside the doors of the church and go live life ought to be, on one hand, a very frightening experience without Christ. With Christ, it should be an engaging, um, 
moment of spiritual opportunity. And I want to look at God's provision for a Christian's triumph over Satan. But I first, remember we went through Luke 22 just a few minutes ago? Peter learned some things when he got sifted, and he wrote about them in 1 Peter chapter 5. And it's going to be very, very instructive to us as to how to live our life listening to one who walked down a path I hope none of us will walk down. And then we're going to come back uh, after a little break and uh, answer that question that I raised at the very beginning. Uh, Can a true believer be inhabited or indwelt by demons with the need for those demons to be cast out or exorcised? Uh, That's the most often asked question, most confusing element relating to demons at a practical level in the church today from coast to coast and border to border. So that's, And in the meantime, we're going to intersperse some more of your questions. So that's where we'll be going in all of that.